welcome to the Alternate Rhythm Podcast, a resource that seeks to help youth pastors and leaders journey through the Revised Common Lectionary in their ministry. My name is Nestor, and I am one of your co-hosts for this podcast. For the next four weeks, we will be inviting our students to experience the season of Advent through a series we have titled, Waiting. If you have not done so already, pause this episode and check out episode one for a glimpse into the lectionary, the season of Advent, and a breakdown of this series. Also, make sure to follow us on Instagram at alternate underscore rhythm podcast for updates and resources based on each episode. Now, without further ado, here's your other co-host, Jared, with a random fact. Share a random fact about you, Jared, with something that the world might not know about you that can bring us into your world a little bit. I think strawberries are very overrated, and that is one of my hottest takes. But I've also learned never learned how to ride a bike. That is another random fact that people are always really surprised about. And I get it, but I just, when I was younger, never thought I would need to ride a bike. So I didn't. And there was also a story about a time where uh, I told a little fib and then I got grounded and had to do with having a bike and training wheels and all that. And so I just say I was scarred. That's why I didn't learn. Wow. That, that's beautiful. We should do a live on Instagram um, just to teach you how to, how to ride a bike as part of this podcast has nothing to do with the topic, but that would be amazing. And then we can fly out our friend Thomas, who's six foot seven and he didn't know how to ride a bike for a while. I think he knows now, but I just think it'd be funny to watch him ride a bike. That that would be my, my random fact isn't, it's interesting. I I haven't told, I don't know. I told you this. I recently, I think I did. I so said, I recently found out that I might be the descendant of the only black pirate in Puerto Rican history. So I have a pretty uh, mixed ethnic racial background. And Miguel Enriquez uh, is part of that. He owned basically all of the capital for a while uh, and then had a downward spiral afterwards. He was a pirate after all. Pirates are cool though. Um, and they're a great example for students to follow. So I love sharing that story um, as part of the holiness in my bloodline and background. <laughs> no, but Are I, you sure hey, I'm the only sarcastic pirate. one in this friendship? Oh, this wasn't sarcasm. I'm an actual pirate. And I, I think that they are great examples. No, I can, I've, it's, it's rubbed off on me. We'll say that. <laughs> so today Jumping off of those random facts, pirates and all, pirates riding bikes. Today, I don't know what that was about. (laughs) Today, we are going to uh, begin our Advent series. And so the first uh, text that we'll be discussing, that we'll be going through, is found in Isaiah chapter 64 this week. So some of you might be familiar with the hook, book, look, took method of preparing lessons um, or curriculum. And, and we, we chose that just because it's a really easy and simple way to communicate to our teens. It has a nice flow. Uh, I use it a lot of the times when I am, am speaking and writing my own stuff. 
Uh, and so the, it's four it has four major movements in it. The first is hook. So back on the theme of pirates, Captain Hook, right? Uh, hey. but, but really, Hook is about bringing people in, right? Capturing their attention. So a lot of times, this is going to be. <laughs> I was just going to say we won't be this cheesy all the time, um, or we will. Or we will. We're just really excited. Also, that random pause there was because I saw Nestor ready to talk, and then he took a second to talk, and then it made me look like that. We're also like not. That. We're also not in person. Zoom conversation. So stuff like that will happen. It's okay, bro. You, yeah. you can't look anyway on a podcast. You can only hear you. That's true. Thank FYI. you for explaining that to me. That is why we're good friends. So back to Captain Hook. So Hook is about <laughs> bringing people's attention in, right? Capturing their attention. And I think that's really important. Uh, I mean, it's good sometimes to just dive into the text. I think that's that can be an appropriate way of engaging a lesson. Uh, but I like to, a lot of the times, tell a story, give an illustration, give a picture, whatever it may be, to really grab my team's attention, right? So that, they, that they're in there, they're hooked, they're engaged with me. And then we transition from that to book, which is scripture. That's where you're gonna be talking about your, your work and interpreting the text and maybe what that text might mean. And so that, that is one of my favorite parts, and, and that's one of Nestor's favorite parts as well. And so we might spend a lot more time in that area just because uh, Scripture is important for discipleship, and it is the Word of God, and we want to, to just wrestle with that and, and wrestle with what it might mean for our students and the world today. And so as we talk about about book we might even then bring in Nestor mentioned earlier about how we if through Advent we're at least focusing on the Old Testament but this is maybe where we'll focus we might bring in one of the other lections for that week whether it's the Psalm the New Testament reading or the gospel text and then we're going to transition from book to look and that's really like how does this look how do we live this out in the world? And so that's a lot of your practical, uh, practical examples, your practical, like, this is how I see it at work. This is what God is calling us to as a community or as an individual. And then from look, we go to took. And really, when I do this, I really just focus right there on the big idea. So just hitting in again, this is the big idea. This is what I want you to know and live in that week. And in the took, then we're also going to be sharing a practice for your teens or community to engage in. And so whether that be a practice of meditating or looking at how you can experience God on the way to school, I guess people aren't really traveling on buses right now uh, because of coronavirus or many people are, but just different ways to, to put into practice what we just talked about and the big idea. And so that's going to be, that's going to be our method hook book, look and took. And so coming from that method into this specific text could be with a game. And so there are many games about memorization. So one of the, the main theme, I should say that is remembrance, um, remembering what God has done in the past and allowing that to shape our approaches in the present 
and our hopes of the future. And so a game about remembering, there's a game called Remember This uh, that we can include in notes uh, so that you can uh, use that if you don't have a specific game. But any game that has to do with memorization, with remembering, could bring students into this posture of thinking about what remembering is. And another way that we can hook teens and uh, bring them into this specific text uh, is sharing a personal story about waiting. Waiting is something that we experience on a daily basis uh, most of the time. And so we all must have a story that can be funny uh, or might just be sad uh, in a funny way. I don't know if that's a thing. But there's, we, we all have stories of waiting that, that can bring students also into that posture of, of remembering uh, what waiting, uh, what uh, remembering in the waiting is like. And so we're going to be talking about waiting throughout this whole series. And a really, and this whole text is about what our posture should be in the waiting. Uh, so whether you go with the game or with the story, uh, it's, a, it's a unique way of bringing our students in. So Jared, I want to ask you, what's a personal story of yours about waiting about that you would waiting. share with your students? So. I'm not sure if I'm going to share this one with them yet because I've like kind of told this, but you didn't tell me you were going to ask me about this. And so this is the first story that came to mind about waiting. So we're going to go with it. Uh, I am going to, one of the things that comes to mind when I think about waiting is for those of you who might not know, uh, I'm married and I have a wonderful wife. Her name is Lauren and one of the things that I, looking back at our relationship, uh, I think is kind of cool now, but in the moment, like, wasn't that great, is I had to ask her out three times before she finally said yes. And one of the times, the last time, I just couldn't wait any longer. Like, she was giving me mixed messages, mixed sim like signals. I was like, I just can't wait. I need to, get, I need to ask her. But the thing was, the other, like, she wasn't on campus that weekend, and she wouldn't, like, she wasn't, uh, so I couldn't ask her in person, right? And so I'm, I can be impatient at times, and that's why I love Advent, because Advent reminds me to, to practice patience and wait. And so I sent her a text, which if there are any students out there listening, don't text someone and ask them out, ask them in person. Um, that's probably the best way to go in, in those moments. And so I texted her. And I was like, hey, like, you know, I don't remember exactly, but I was probably pretty smooth in my, in my text and asked her if she wanted to, to go on a date with me. And then she didn't say yes, but she also didn't say no. And she said, let's talk about this when I get back tomorrow. And so that was like a long 24 hours. Like she, I sent that on a Saturday. The next day I went to church. I did not pay attention at all in church because my mind was, was thinking about maybe what this relationship could be uh, or what it could like, what it could be in a positive way. Or maybe, you know, if she had enough of me and enough of me asking her out what that would look like in that way. And so I was waiting full of anticipation for her to finally respond 
or to, for us to finally have that conversation. I love it. I love it because that's one story that I might not have shared fully yet with, um, well, I, I might have shared a little bit of it with our youth group um, here uh, where I'm currently located, but uh, I met my wife in fifth grade and just fell deeply in love with her in ninth grade. I was just convinced that that was the woman I wanted to marry. We weren't even friends then. I just, I was just convinced. So we became friends. I was friend zoned, which is one of the places where waiting can be dark and lonely and, um, and just painful. And so if you have ever been or have a student that is in the friend zone, empathy is extremely important because it's a really dark place to be in. Uh, but I waited within that and I said, you know what, I'm just going I'm I'm to stick around. And someday she's going to see that, that I'm, I'm, I'm it. I'm the guy. And it happened second semester of, of senior year. But so it was a long time of waiting, uh, of hearing her talk about other relationships and other guys and being that really good friend that listened. But um, it, I remember how, how the waiting was. So you said 24 hours. Um, literally like three to four years was just a really dark place, but. Okay. Flex though. No, no, not flex. <laughs> we both turned out great though in our we waiting. Did. Hey, we, we have amazing, amazing women by our sides that make us better, better human beings, better people. So yeah, waiting is a big part of this whole series but specifically of this passage. And so to begin in a place where we remember that waiting uh, in contexts like these, it can be funny, you know, being friend zoned 24 hours of desperate waiting and not paying attention in church. Um, but waiting can also be extremely painful because a lot of our students in our world is in a place of waiting for, um, for things that are breaking us apart that are creating deep wounds. And so it's not that funny and it's really important to address. Uh, and so I'm going to go ahead and read the text if you don't mind, Jared. And I think it's just stating out or reading or bringing us into the text ourselves. So we know what we're going into, what we're discussing. And so this is what Isaiah chapter 64 verses one through nine says, and we're going to be, primarily using the new revised standard version, the NRSV. And so this is what the word of the Lord says in Isaiah chapter 64. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries so that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome deeds that we did not expect, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From ages past, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who works for those who wait for him. You meet those who gladly do right, those who remember you in your ways, but you were angry and we sinned, because you hid yourself, we transgressed. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy cloth. 
we all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls on your name or attempts to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us, and you have delivered us into the hand of our iniquity. Yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be exceedingly angry, O Lord, and do not remember iniquity forever. Now consider, we are all your people. So the author of this passage is expressing a deep angst. Uh, There's hope, there's angst, there's lament, there's confession, there's all sorts of things going on in this text. But it's all within the context of the people of God waiting. So this text was written between 586 BCE, which is when the Babylonian conquest happened, uh, where the people of God saw their city be destroyed, uh, where they saw loved ones be uh, murdered. And then many of them were stripped away from their land forcefully and taken to Babylon. And so they're in this place of deep anxiety and pain and waiting, waiting to see what is going to happen. Are we going to be in exile forever? So it was written between that period when it started. And we personally know the end of the story. Uh, They go back around 515 BCE and the city and the temple is rebuilt. Yet they did not know that was going to happen the way it happened. They had not experienced that yet. They're just in that place of waiting. They're in that in-between tense moment of experiencing exile, of experiencing feeling like God has abandoned them and not knowing what to do in light of that. So this specific text is part of a larger text, which is, all considered a lament. And so within biblical tradition, there are passages, primarily Psalms, where the people of God lament. They express deep pain, grief, sorrow. There's a whole book that comes out of this exilic period uh, titled Lamentations, where their people of God are expressing deep pain from what has happened to them as a whole, as a people. And in fact, the psalm that is part of our lectionary readings for this week is, all, is one of those psalms of lament. And so it, this might be a way to connect the psalm to the lesson, to this passage. But it's, it, there's a pattern of the people of God expressing deep pain, which is something that as a culture, and I don't know if you agree with me, Jared, but uh, we shy away from. We don't like uh, that place of lament and we don't create space for that in our churches. And I love when we're able to bring this to young people uh, and remind them, hey, there's really nothing that you can express to God that is going to get you struck by lightning. Um, God wants to hear your heart. And there was deep work being done through the people's lament. Uh, And that's, that's what this passage is a part of. So it's important to see this passage within the whole of this lament, which starts in Isaiah chapter 63, verse seven, and ends with Isaiah chapter 64, verse 12. And actually, if you go to the beginning, and this will be important as we see the breakdown of this specific text, 
which I think has a threefold pattern that is important for understanding it. But verse uh, seven in Isaiah 63 says the following. It says, I will recount the gracious deeds of the Lord, the praiseworthy acts of the Lord because of all that the Lord has done for us and the great favor to the house of Israel that he has shown them according to his mercy, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. So the lament and this passage starts from a place of hope. It starts remembering God's hesed or steadfast love, this insistence uh, from God to continue to love on God's people, despite what they have done, despite them not being faithful to the covenant they have with God. And so it starts in this place of hope, of remembrance. You know, the God that has done gracious deeds in the past, the God that freed us from Egypt and slavery, the God that brought us into the promised land. This is the God that we're calling out to and lament. So if we go specifically to verses one through nine, you can break it down in the following way. They start with remembering in verses one through two. So there's hope in what God can do based on what God has done in the past, despite the fact that they're in exile, despite the brokenness of their current situation, there's hope. That hope is, again, it's based on what God has done graciously in the past, what verse seven of chapter 63 refers to, or God's steadfast love. The fact that steadfast love is part of God's character. And so there's a remembrance. There's a call to the people to remember within the place of waiting to look back and say, God has been with us. God has done this before. And this is the God that we cry out to. It moves into verse five through seven. Oh, you can say something. Yeah. Yeah. I just think, I think that that's important, right? Like to remember that God is a God who acts. Um, and that doesn't mean though, like, we sometimes I think it can be easy to sanitize or to 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 think that well I am going to escape or get out of whatever waiting I'm in, and there there might be times in which we're just always in this perpetual season of waiting, but remembering that that God is a God who acts, that a God is a God who is present, and I think that that is key in this text, and I think that's part of what what Isaiah is, is calling us to in, in this lament, right? And, and then we then lean into, well, you're a God who acts. Well, why, why don't we see the way that, that you're acting now, right? That's part of that, that lament right there. Yeah, yeah. So remembrance is the, the perfect place to start for the, the people of God and their waiting. And it is an important place for us to start. Um, even as we go through life right now, like remembering in our churches. I know that a lot of, and this is just my heart as a youth pastor who moved into a new community amidst coronavirus, uh, our churches has struggled through coronavirus, whether it's in the decisions that we've had to make, um, in attendance, whatever it might be. Uh, and I have a lot of friends in ministry who I know are going through similar experiences. And even remembering like where our church has been and how God has worked through our local communities, how God has worked through uh, the people in the place that we meet, that we gather is important. So starting from that place of recognizing God and then moves into confession. And this is an interesting movement in their lament uh, because it recognizes that the problems that we're in, and this is 
the people of God, Israel speaking. The problem that we're in right now, God didn't throw us into this. This is our fault. Like we brought this upon ourselves. And there's a confession, a recognition that this situation is a consequence of their own actions. And so they say that specifically, if you go to verse five, uh, it says, you were angry and we sinned because you hid yourself. We transgressed. And so there's, there's this important recognition that you have hidden from us based on our actions and our consequences have come upon ourselves. And so in, it's important for us to bring students into that place as well as, as we're bringing them into lament, into remembering, also recognizing that most, if not all, sometimes of the dark things we go through um, are the consequence of our decisions or the decisions of those around us. And confessing that is an important move towards lamenting or towards calling out to God. So we remember who God is. We confess the reality of how we've brought some of this evil upon ourselves, of how we've caused some of these things to happen to us. And again, if we look at our present day, a lot of the things that we're going through, we could see human uh, action or inaction being the cause of a lot of our pain. And then that moves into plea. But Jared, I think you had something to say there too. Yeah, I think I think confessing is good, right? And I I, I like the point that you brought out that w- that we can confess the things that that we have done or or those around us. And I I just really want to hit on this because I think sometimes when we we say we we're thinking of still the individual, you know, and, and that is the case sometimes, but yet we see in scripture that that there is more communal language than it is just an individual right and so acknowledging the ways that we as a community have failed to be faithful to the call that that god has placed for us and and again there is i want to say like we should also be confessing individually but also we we've i think in my experience we've lost some of the the communal nature of of that we of confessing. Yeah. And it's bold and daring for whoever's writing this. Um, and we can get into authorship, but won't do that for the sake of time. But um, the writer of this text is recognizing that he or she is part of a community and is constantly using communal language. So it's a, we, it's not like I have sinned. God, come please save me. Cause I'm confessing for me. So do something for me because I'm the one that came and confessed. No, it's like, I'm going to come in here and confess for all of us. I'm going to take all of our pain, all of our angst, all of our mess ups. I'm going to put it upon myself to come to God. Um, And that's a beautiful posture that we can um, impress upon our students that when we're, as we remember, we confess together, like we're part of a whole family and we're not the only ones affected by the darkness around our world. And that moves into the plea. So the plea has a base in remembrance. It has a place in confession. So it's a beautiful movement towards the final plea where hope sort of climaxes after confession and acknowledging that even in exile, even in the present circumstances that the people are going through, God is shaping their lives as a potter molds clay or God is like a loving parent. 
So it goes from this idea of, you know, the God that can make the mountains tremble, this grandiose idea of what God has done in the past. It moves into confession. And then it goes into a very intimate plea. It's like, I know that you're the God that has done these amazing things, but you're also a parent. You're, you're someone that is close, even as we're in exile. You're someone that is molding us, even as we're going through these pains. You are here with us. And it says something bold at the end. The author says in verse nine, consider we are all your people. So it goes from, again, into this communal reality. Like, remember, this isn't just about me. And I would hope that there's a sense in which this isn't just about Israel. Like, we are all creation, your people. And so this plea for God to act comes from a place of recognizing that this is the God of the universe. And there's this hope in the fact that it's not just my God. This is our God that I'm trusting in. I have a question. Do you think that then there's almost a double call to remembrance here? There's a call for the people to remember who Yahweh is, but also God, Yahweh, to remember Yahweh's people, right? There's this call that he is the potter, that he is the one who shows up, right? Do you think that or do you think maybe I'm just reading into that too much? No, yeah, definitely, which takes me into one of the things that I think can be a transit. So this is, if, if you were going through a lesson prep, this is book. So this is diving into the text. Um, and you could break this down however you want for your specific youth ministry group. You know your students uh, better than we do. And so these are just some important details about the text that you can uh, break down for them to understand what we're looking at. And so when we move into look or how does this work out in our context, uh, there's this one specific idea in this text, which is the hiddenness of God. So again, the, there's a call for God to remember because there's this, there's this understanding that God is hiding from us. And so God does not remember us that in the hiding God is absent. Uh, but the text actually reorients us in a certain way. So I would actually say remembering uh, from our part, from the part of the people of God uh, is, can be, can be good, but it could also have a negative effect depending on how we approach that remembrance. So for example, we can remember, oh, God has done these great things in the past, which could bring us to the place of saying, why won't God do something now? And we could become angry and hopeless. Uh, you know, if God delivered Israel from Egypt, that was awesome. You know, God delivered the people from exile here. Like again, they're in the moment. And it's important to place ourselves in their shoes and not go ahead of the story because they didn't know the end of the story. Uh, but we do. We honestly do. That God takes us back, takes them back from exile into uh, the city to be rebuilt and the second temple, which is uh, built after this period. And so if God did that, why doesn't God just end coronavirus? Um, why doesn't God bring healing amidst racial tensions in our nation? Why doesn't God um, put a stop to all the bickering over partisan politics? Like, why doesn't God uh, do something now? Why doesn't God heal my family member? Like God healed so-and-so's family member. Um, and I don't know how you feel with that tension, Jared, or what you think that, that could 
mean to students, but that's the tension where the the author is sort of placed in. So even in confessing, even in recognizing that, there's this idea that God is hidden. Again, it, it's literally the word that is used in verse five. It says, we sin because you hid yourself. So there's this, this understanding that God is absent through hiddenness. But I think that this passage is revealing something else about God in that hiddenness, which we can we can go to, but I want to hear your thoughts on that tension. Yeah, I think that tension is is something that that needs to be named because a lot of times we we talk about the trials and the tribulations and whatever we're experiencing, and and we just we focus on the good. And that like I think there's something to that, right? But going back to the story of the people of God as they were delivered from slavery right out of egypt they didn't go right into the promised land did they no they wandered in the desert for a while so more time of waiting yeah, right a lot and of so waiting. a lot of waiting and and so there were people who didn't even who were rescued from bondage in egypt that then didn't even get to go to the promised land right moses was one of them yeah. and the greatest leader of israel and so i think helping our students recognize and be comfortable with the fact that sometimes like you know we're going to be waiting for a while and it might not always get better but yet god is still there and 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 communicating that i think in a way that is not like nihilistic right we're like oh it's just like there's no point like if if things are ever gonna if things are always going to be totally pointless like suck then why why even but yet helping our students cultivate an awareness of who God is, how God has acted, who God is in our waiting and what God is ultimately going to do in the world. And I think, I think Alicia in our previous podcast pointed to that beautifully because she talked about how Advent, like we come to Advent in this time right now where everything is like, just out of whack, out of chaos, you know, everything is sus, right? But yet we need this season to remember that God is ultimately going to bring the kingdom one day. We live in that tension, right? Of the already and not yet. And maybe for some of us, maybe for some of our teens, it's going to be not yet always until the kingdom comes and it's fullness, right? Does that make sense? I think. Uh, yeah. You know yeah. What I'm saying. I- that, and that's the that's the perfect way to move students into why this matters to us. Like we're not the people of Israel in exile, uh, but there are many situations that are making us feel exiled, uh, that are making us feel like God is hidden. And yet we have the hope of what God has done in the past, like you said, and the hope of what God has done in the future. Yet we don't live fully into either one of those spaces and time. We can only live in the present And so in the present, there's this beautiful movement in the text, which again is hidden as God is hidden, not to be quirky, but uh, there's this. (laughs) Maybe maybe a good game would be hide and seek. I was going to, yeah, maybe I was going to say sardines, but maybe not because of coronavirus. Not during COVID. (laughs) No, but uh, so there's this question looming for readers. If you're paying attention, why is God hiding? Why would God do that? Why would God do such great things? So there's, there's, there's a reorientation towards the end again. 
there's this place of intimacy that the author falls into after moving from, again, remembrance to confession into this plea, this intimate plea. And there's a recognition in that, that statement that this is the God of all, like you are our God, that God is not contained by Israel. And for us, that means God isn't contained by the church. Like God doesn't belong to us. Uh, and this is our God. So God's hiddenness reminds us as a church when we ourselves struggle with the evil that is surrounding us as a creation that God doesn't belong to us. Um, and following God doesn't mean that we're going to be exempt from all of the things that are broken in our world. We still live in this world like any other person who might not have chosen to follow Christ, might not choose to be uh, within this covenant with Yahweh. And so we don't own God. And that's important to recognize, especially for a lot of us in present day conversations about uh, God and culture and society. And then the other thing that we can see is that God judges the people in this specific case by withdrawing protection, which they had had in the past. So there was a moment in which they were protected, but the people decided within that protection to stray from the ways of God. And so God steps away is the image. God hides away so that they can notice the consequences of their own decisions. Uh, which is an action of loving parents as well. Um, we can, we, most of the time, parents don't punish children just because they want to or because they're evil. It's usually a way of showing children. Um, like I, I was ha just having a conversation with some teens that are grounded. Um, and grounding is a way of saying you messed up and there's consequences to messing up. And that's how life is going to be in the future. Like if you mess up at work, there's going to be consequences to that. If you mess up in your marriage, there's going to be consequences to that. Like there are consequences. And so there's this removal of something. In this case, for some of those teens, it was their cell phones and technology. There's a removal of this. So you can remember that uh, this is a privilege that you have and there's consequences to messing up. And I'm going to take this away for a while so that you can realize how how much privilege you have in using these things and what consequences can do. So there, there's this stepping away so that they can experience something that then leads them to confession. Like there's, there's in a way, there's no way they could approach or arrive to the place of confession unless they lived out the consequences of their decisions. And it's, it's, it's one of those hard ones to talk about consequences and, and what God's place is within all of that. But I mean, that is the reality we live in in a sinful world. We experience consequences to, to sin, to evil. I think I, I, I really like what you're, what you're bringing out of that, Nestor, because it seems as if you're saying that in God's absence, God is drawing God's people into God's self right? That, that there's something that is happening in the absence of God that God is using to shape and form God's people to be more faithfully the people of God, to be a blessing, right? Yeah. And I, not, not to correct you, like, yes, um, I would use the word hidden instead of absent because I think in God's yeah, hiddenness, hidden. yeah, yeah, yeah. God is still present. 
Yes, and that's sorry. What, yeah. No, no, you're good. Because that's, that's one of the things that it's <laughs> one of the things that the Israelites were struggling with. It's like, oh, God's hidden. So God's absent, but no, in yes. God's hiddenness, so that they can experience the consequences of their own actions, so that they can remember that God doesn't belong to them, that they as a people belong to God. In that hiddenness, God is still present. And that's the recognition of the author at the end. Like, oh, yes. you are the potter. And so in your hiddenness, you're molding us. In your hiddenness, you're parenting us. You're, you're, you're with us. And so this, there's this reorientation from the God of the grandiose that makes mountains shake, that parts Red Sea and brings people into the promised land. And it brings us into this view of an intimate God where we see that God's power is suffering and God's omnipotence is vulnerability. And that one's for those who have this view of God as something up there outside, which for a lot of our young people, um, that's where they're at, either because um, they've moved from that place developmentally um, or for different reasons. But a lot of our church people, period, not just young people, are shaped in that way. They see God as this huge out there thing. And it's really hard to see God in the intimate. And so we, we're constantly looking for these, these big moments like the author at the beginning. But it's beautiful that the author ends in intimacy and doesn't insist on those big moments. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's important, right? And, and so thinking about this practically, right? We've talked a lot about we've been in digging deep in the trenches, right? And in the biblical text and we've been talking about the theology behind this. And and I think you point out right, yeah, it it's better to say God is is hidden, not absent because we believe that in in Christ and in the world, God is always present, right? And especially in our suffering through the person of Christ, which we're jumping forward past uh, absence or Advent absence. Sorry about that, Advent. Uh, but God is God is present. There's not one place that God has not yet gone because of the incarnation, because of Christ, right? And so, thinking about this practically, uh, I think it's important to then help our our students figure out in the waiting, how do I see God? How do I, how do I cultivate, how do I open myself up to where God is at in, in this waiting? Because it can be really easy for me to, to focus on, on my situation, whether that be my extreme anxiety or my, you know, the coronavirus, right? Which like, not to downplay those things, those things are big and we need to focus on them. I'm not saying that at all, but yet we need to also focus, well, where is God at in this? How do we, what do we do to posture ourselves? We need to help, help our teens take the posture of experiencing God, even when life sucks, right? Because God is still there. Yeah. And that's part of what we're expecting uh, through Advent moving into Christmas. It's this, this story where God, God of the universe is hidden in this baby, in this Christ child and continues to be hidden throughout a life of self-giving love all the way to the cross. And so how can we point our students to seeing God present while hidden in their daily ordinary walks in life? Uh, because that brings hope to us. 
uh, and that's that's a process of learning. Uh, it's a process of of reorienting ourselves constantly. And so, one question that comes up for me that could be discussed uh, is, what are we waiting for? Like to ask students, what are you waiting for? Um, and to name it. Uh, the people of God named what they're waiting for. We're waiting to be released from this from this exile. Um, so, what are we waiting for? But then how can we get to that point where in our waiting we say, but you are the potter. Uh, you are our father. Uh, you are that the one who loves with steadfast love. And I want to see that. Um, so a practice that I thought, and um, Jared might flex and share some of his plans for Advent, but one practice that I was thinking could be good to share with our students is uh, fasting, specifically something that we love and that we enjoy. Uh, and so within that week of waiting to once again, enjoy that. Um, so for me, something that would be really hard to fast would be pizza. I really, really, really love pizza. And so to spend a week without eating pizza and expecting that it's going to happen in the next seven days, I'm going to have a pizza party. It's going to be great. But in that waiting period, to put myself in a posture of prayer, of meditation, of, of those moments when I think of pizza specifically, of just asking God, help me see you in the hiddenness of the everyday. Help me see you uh, in, in all that around me. And even though I am in a place of lament, I want to see you. And I know that you're here, that you're not absent. I want to be able to have a glimpse of how you're working in our world. Um, I, I don't know. I, what do you think about that, Jared? I love that that you chose fasting for the first practice because I think a lot of times when we think about fasting, we think about Lent, right, as we prepare for Easter. But this year, I've just been really impressed um, and been thinking about how can I prepare? What can I do? What posture can I take? And fasting is something that that came to mind uh, to me. And so I, I'm in this mode of discerning, well, what during Advent can I fast to help me be attentive to where God is at in the waiting? And so some ideas that I've had are, are social media uh, or coffee. Those are probably the two that I'm stuck on. Oh, right I can't now. do coffee, but that, I, I'd applaud you if you can do that one. Yeah, I've talked with my students about fasting coffee before and they said they'd hold me accountable. So uh, maybe I'll put them on what, the spot and, and just try it and see if they'll actually hold me accountable. Uh, but no, uh, I think fasting is important, right? Because it helps us remember who God is and helps us to rely uh, upon God, right? To to have this remembering that we need to rely upon God and, and to really reshape where our, our hope is at there. And so I think that this is, I think that's a good practice to invite our, our teens in because we want to, again, like we're through this lesson, we're hoping that our teens, um, they're focused. Yeah. That on that, maybe this waiting will be resolved, but more importantly, that God is present with them in the waiting and that God wants to shape them and form them in the waiting and draw them into a closer relationship with God. And so on that note, would you share with us what the big idea for, for this lesson would be? 
Yeah, and this is, um, I, again, as you engage this text yourself, um, it's important to, to leave your students with something that they can summarize this with. But for me, um, and you can, you can share your thoughts as now that we've had this conversation, for me, the big idea is God is present. Even when God is hidden, God is present in our waiting and is molding us like a potter molds clay. Uh, that intimate image, leaving them with that intimate image of a God who is a potter, who is shaping and molding us. Uh, and sometimes it's not in spite of our waiting, it's because of the waiting that we have the opportunity to be molded. I remember when quarantine started with coronavirus, one of the things I tried to push our students to uh, and push myself into was, you know, as I wait to once again leave the confines of my apartment, what am I going to do about it? Am I going to spend my whole time thinking about how things used to be before coronavirus and before being quarantined? Am I going to think about how amazing it's going to be when I leave quarantine? Or am I going to take advantage of this moment as I wait and actually grow, grow closer to God, grow closer to my wife who I was stuck with in the apartment and my dog? Um, or am I just going to live in the past or the present or the, or the future? And I think I, that helped me uh, take advantage of that moment. But that's even a memory that you can bring up with your students. Like, remember when we were in quarantine? Uh, what did you do with that time of waiting? Um, did you did you do, like, what did what you do uh, make you feel like you took, got the most out of it? Um, and again, I, I don't, I think Corona is one of those things that is, is a consequence of some of our human actions. Uh, but God, can use these moments of waiting to shape us, to mold us, to reorient us if we allow that to happen. So that's, again, let me, let me, let me go back to the sentence. God is present in our waiting, molding us like a potter molds clay. That's really good. I, I really like that, that big idea. And maybe something, uh, a youth ministry hack that we could do or something that we could do to help our teens engage this big idea is maybe we invest in Play-Doh or you have someone who, I don't know if you have someone who likes uh, to do pottery in your youth ministry or church, or you pull up a video, but, but showing this like image of, of a potter and their clay or giving them Play-Doh or something that they can touch and they can feel and create out of that, that might really help some of our our kids and teens and students learn and be drawn into this idea that God wants to shape them in the waiting and that, that our life is not just about the destination, but it's about the journey and that on the journey, God is doing something in, in our, our lives. And so thank you, Nestor, for, for doing the work uh, this week of diving into the text and and experiencing God and bringing out some ways that we can invite our teens and our 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 adults who are in, involved in our ministries into a a faithful waiting a waiting that seeks to experience God and that and draw closer to God. And so thank you all for listening. I want to let you know that we're going to be releasing the next week's podcast on next Monday. So if you want to continue on 
this journey with us on engaging the lectionary and what it might mean for youth ministry. Be on the lookout for that on all of the uh, well-known podcast networks. So thank you all, and we look forward to continuing.